Welcome to the Immortal Souls Podcast, where we explore the history, stories, myths, legends, and hype that make shoes what they are today. We are Jared and Nick, two brothers with a passion for shoes. We are excited to have you along for the journey. Today, we focus on perhaps the greatest, most defining, most precedent-setting basketball shoe in history. This is the sneaker that made shoe collecting a thing and practically created the movement that would become modern sneaker culture as we know it today. This is the shoe that helped launch the career of the greatest basketball player of all time. This is the shoe that inspired dreams of basketball greatness in all of us, from the young playground hoopster to the aging gym warrior. If we could just walk in his shoes, we could also taste greatness because it's got to be the shoes, right? In the pantheon of shoe greatness, this one truly stands immortal. Yes, folks, we are talking about the Nike Air Jordan 1. To set the stage, we go back to 1982. The University of North Carolina Tar Heels, under coach Dean Smith, was a basketball powerhouse. To top off an impressive season, they made a deep playoff run, eventually getting to the national championship game where they would face off against the formidable Georgetown Hoyas and its star player, yes, Patrick Ewing. The game was a nail-biter, and with just 15 seconds left, a young, relatively unknown Tar Heel freshman by the name of Michael Jordan hit the game-winning jump shot for the newly minted national champion Tar Heels. A one-point lead for Georgetown. No, they stay in the 1-3-1 with Ewing in the middle. They've got to look to get it in there. You can't with a shot blocker like Ewing take so much time. Gordy the Black. The time, 18. Shot, Jordan! Michael Jordan, 14 seconds. This moment arguably put him on the map, and Jordan later remarked in an interview that at that moment, he was no longer just Mike, but now he was Michael Jordan. Michael went on to play another year at North Carolina until he entered the 1984 NBA draft, where he was drafted by the Chicago Bulls as the third overall pick. After a quick stint in the 1984 Los Angeles Summer Olympics, where he led the U.S. Olympic team to Olympic gold with an 8-0 record, Jordan began his career as a Chicago Bull, and the rest, as we know, is history. Back in college, Michael played basketball in Converse sneakers as Coach Dean Smith was paid by the brand to outfit his players in their shoes. In the 1982 championship, he wore a pair of blue and white Converse Pro leather high tops. This trend continued with Jordan sporting blue and white Converse high tops in the Olympics. While Converse sneakers certainly got the job done and he played his entire college career in Converse sneakers, Michael actually dreamed of eventually playing ball in Adidas' shoes. As he began his career with the Bulls, Michael hoped to sign a sneaker deal with the German brand Adidas, who, at the time, was a sneaker juggernaut, already with several top athletes signed under the brand. 
Now, we don't know if it was the shoes particularly, or the brand image, or prestige, or maybe some other factor, but whatever it was, Jordan's dream was to sign with Adidas. Due to internal company politics and shifts in its leadership structure at the time, however, Adidas was just not willing or able to make any offers at the time. Michael was understandably disappointed at this. During this time, as a courtesy to his college coach, Dean Smith, he instead visited Converse headquarters despite a lack of interest to sign with the company. Converse promised Michael a shoe deal paying around $100,000 a year, which was on par with other top player shoe contracts at the time. While by all accounts this was an attractive deal, Michael didn't see a future with the company as it lacked any clear plans for future shoe innovation. As the story goes, at one point in the conversation with Converse and Michael, Michael's father, who was present at the meeting, asked some Converse representatives, don't you guys have any new innovative ideas? The room was silent. There was no response. At the time, Converse was considered the top producer of athletic shoes in the U.S., but the tide seemed to be changing, as other brands started catching up and outmaneuvering Converse with new ideas and innovations. And then along comes Nike. At this time, Nike, although it had reported its first ever quarterly loss in February of 1984, was still by all indications an up-and-coming brand. And, unlike Adidas or Converse, Nike was not about to play things conservatively when it spotted a juicy opportunity. On the hunt for new talent to sign, Nike saw huge potential in Jordan, and they really, really wanted him. A lot. Connecting with Jordan's agent, David Falk, who coincidentally had close ties with Nike and whose clients mostly wore Nike, Nike aimed to get the young Michael Jordan to its company headquarters in Beaverton, Oregon, to sit him down and give him a sales pitch that he just wouldn't be able to refuse. Jordan, at first, was having none of it. After the 1984 Olympics, he was exhausted, and the last thing he wanted to do was to fly out to Oregon to meet with some shoe company that he had no real interest in signing with. In his own words, Falk recalled that Michael told him, I have no interest in going there, and just do what you need to do to get me with Adidas. Despite Jordan's lack of interest in meeting with Nike, Falk was not about to give up on matching Jordan up with Nike. So he called Jordan's parents, James and Dolores Jordan, and he told them that he needed Michael in Oregon for the presentation. And the next thing we know, Michael with his parents in tow were on a plane to Beaverton, Oregon. With their target audience now present, Nike needed to play their cards just right. This was their only shot at snagging this new star with signs of huge potential, and the cards were, frankly, stacked against them. As things were, Jordan wasn't too keen on Nike shoes because the soles were too thick and, let's be honest, heck, they just weren't Adidas. Well, to Nike, this was no problem. The issue with thick soles was an easy tweak, and they would make whatever design changes needed to make Michael happy. Off to a good start, Nike needed to move in for the kill and seal the deal. They promised Michael the moon, basically giving him their entire rookie budget for the season, 
which turned out being a whopping $500,000 a year for a five-year deal worth $2.5 million. This might not sound like the biggest deal in today's terms, but this deal was unprecedented and huge money for the time. It was over double the amount any other NBA player was getting for shoe sponsorships at the time, even including basketball legends in the making such as Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. Nike laid out their vision for the future where Jordan would be a central part of it. Nike would build a whole brand around Jordan where he would be the face of the brand. His dreams would come true. Jordan signed the deal. As MJ's rookie season started in 1984, Nike got to work on designing his first signature shoe. This task fell to Nike creative director Peter C. Moore, who had also designed the famous Adidas Three Bars logo. Moore received instructions from Michael for the shoes to be different and exciting. Along with bold and innovative colors, Moore also needed to come up with a cool logo. While on a flight from Portland to Chicago, he noticed a child wearing a pair of pilot wings given to them from the airline. Moore got to thinking about the concept of flight and Michael's undisputed basketball abilities. He started doodling a basketball and a wing logo on a napkin. And long story short, that doodle was the first iteration of the now iconic basketball and wings logo found on the Jordan 1s. The shoe wouldn't be finished until November of 1985, so in the meantime, MJ continued to wear a high-top model called the Airship which was essentially the design prototype for his upcoming debut signature Jordan shoe. At first, Jordan hated the design. He said that he felt like a clown wearing the shoes, and he had concerns about the soles being too thick. But as time went on, the design grew on him. During this time, Jordan wore at least three colorways of the airship, with the most famous being black and red. And... This brings us to perhaps the most well-known and misunderstood sneaker legend in basketball history, the legend of the banned black and red Air Jordan 1s. As the story goes, on October 16, 1984, the NBA banned Michael from wearing black and red shoes on the court as it violated the league's uniformity of uniform rule which required players' shoes to be primarily black or primarily white, and the shoes must match other teammates' shoes. Michael, who was portraying himself already as an edgy and rebellious rookie, defiantly wore the flashy and non-conforming red and black shoes anyways against the league's and Commissioner David Stern's mandate. This resulted in Michael being fined $5,000 every game he wore the shoes, which fine was happily paid by Nike due to the product exposure and free advertising that came out of the situation. Now that we know the basic story, it's time to put on our Mythbuster hat and break down this story with the facts as we understand them. The first myth. The band's shoes were the black and red Air Jordan 1s. Taking into account the time period in which the October incident happened, the band shoes were actually the black and red Air Ships, as the Air Jordan 1s were still being developed at the time. The next myth. 
Jordan wore the band shoes in a number of regular season games. They were worn in a number of preseason games and the 1985 Slam Dunk Contest. But there is no photographic proof that we are aware of of the shoes ever being worn during the regular season. A third myth. The NBA imposed a $5,000 per game fine for Jordan wearing the shoes. The only hard evidence we have of the NBA reaching out to Jordan or Nike about the offending shoes is a brief letter dated February 25, 1985, from NBA Executive Vice President Russ Granick to Nike Vice President Rob Strasser. In full, the letter reads, In accordance with our conversations, this will confirm and verify that the National Basketball Association's rules and procedures prohibited the wearing of certain red and black Nike basketball shoes by Chicago Bulls player Michael Jordan on or around October 18, 1984. Sincerely, Russell T. Granick. Beyond that letter, we don't have any evidence of the NBA mentioning, let alone actually levying, any sort of fine on Jordan or Nike. Add that to the fact that Jordan didn't wear the black and red sneakers in any official game. So, it's hard to imagine when or for what he would have actually been fined. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean it didn't happen. We just don't have any proof that it happened. And for what it is worth, Jordan Brand, on its own website, states that the shoes generated a $5,000 fine each time the shoes were worn on the court. And there are many articles online that mention the fine as if it were an established fact. So make of that what you will. And it's interesting that you also can't find anywhere a specific number of times that the shoe was worn on the court or a total number of dollars that Jordan was fined. So I think that's something to think about, too. The final myth. Nike paid Jordan's fine. Due to the fact that we don't have any evidence of any fine being issued against Jordan, we can't confirm this as factually correct, other than if we take Nike's own word for it, as stated on the Jordan brand website. Regardless of what actually happened, or whether Jordan was fined or not, it didn't matter. Because weeks after receiving Granick's letter, Nike pounced on the situation and released this now famous Band One commercial. On September 15th, Nike created a revolutionary new basketball shoe. On October 18th, the NBA threw them out of the game. Fortunately, the NBA can't stop you from wearing them. Air Jordans from Nike. This ad and this marketing strategy, while maybe not being 100% factually accurate with regard to the actual shoes that were banned, proved marketing gold. Nike positioned the Air Jordan 1 as being edgy and cool and rebellious. Whoever wore these shoes were, like Mike, sticking it to the man. These shoes and the seemingly competitive edge they gave the wearer were too hot to handle. The shoes dropped shortly after the ad aired on TV in April of 1985. Despite them retailing at an expensive $65 a pair, which, accounting for current inflation rates, comes out to about $152 in 2019, the shoes sold out immediately. 
They were so in demand, in fact, that resellers were even able to flip the shoes for a profit at around $100 a pop, which was an unheard of thing to do at the time. As Michael's rookie season marched on, Nike went on to flood the market with Air Jordan 1s, releasing an impressive 13 different colorways. At the time, and in the years since, the most famous of these colorways would be, understandably, the black and red band colorway, the black, red, and white Chicago colorway, which was the go-to colorway Michael would use in season games, and the royal colorway, which was similar to the band colorway but with the red accents swapped out for royal blue. After the launch of the shoes, if they sold out, Nike was quick to restock them. Eventually, supply outweighed demand, and by the end of 1985, pairs of Air Jordan 1s were just sitting on shelves collecting dust. Some pairs would even sit there for years without being sold. It got to the point that stores were marking the shoes down to $20 a pair just to clear them off the shelves. To a current sneakerhead, given the importance and history of the shoe these days, this just sounds insane. Well, due to the cheap prices and rebellious reputation attached to the shoes, the skateboarding community took note and started snatching them up as they looked cool, and the shoes provided good foot stability and support for skateboarding. The Air Jordan 1s and variation designs based off of the Air Jordan 1 are still embraced and worn by the skateboard community to this day. Today, pairs of these 1985 OG Jordan 1s can fetch anywhere from a few hundred to tens of thousands of dollars a pair. We wish we could jump in a time machine and stock up on these now rare and incredible shoes when they were selling for mere pocket change in the mid-1980s. Gosh, 20 bucks a pair. Nike stopped producing the Jordan 1s in 1986, and they first were retroed in 1994. A quick note to our non-sneakerhead listeners. In sneakerhead terms, to retro a shoe is to bring back an original colorway and or model of a shoe. This first retro batch in 1994 brought back some of the most famous colorways, including the black and red band colorway and the black, red, and white Chicago colorway that he wore during the regular season. As another aside, in sneakerhead terms, black and red Jordan shoes are often referred to as breads, combination of black and red. In future podcasts, if you hear us refer to breads, you will know what we are actually talking about. Since the first retro release of the Air Jordan 1s in 1994, the shoe has been released as retros hundreds of times. If you count all of the colorways and different versions, the shoes, such as high, mid, and low tops. Today, especially when it is released in an original 1985 colorway, the Air Jordan 1 high tops are some of the most prized and sought-after Jordan retros out there, and with good reason. The Air Jordan 1 is among the most iconic and important shoes in basketball history. It helped ignite a sneakerhead and sneaker-collecting culture that endures and thrives to this day. It helped launch the career of Michael Jordan, the greatest basketball player of all time. And its rebellious and edgy persona still resonate with people today, as, like Mike, we continue to test limits, push boundaries, and strive to be greater, to be the best we can be.
Thank you all for tuning into this episode of the Immortal Souls podcast. For more information, show notes, pictures, or just to say hi, check us out at immortalsoulspodcast.com, Instagram, or Twitter. Original theme music by Scott Spriggs. Five-star reviews are always helpful and hugely appreciated. Until next time, keep walking the roads less traveled.